0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. It's episode four. My name is Nate. I'm here with Evan Knowles. We're coming at you from the Fuji offices in downtown Lexington, Kentucky today. We just wrapped up a great conversation with our first guest, Doyle Frisney, the CTO Emeritus of the University of Kentucky. He has some awesome insights in the industry. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening. This is episode four of the podcast. I want to remind you to follow us on all social media. We're at Middle Tech Pod. We're going to post a lot of extra content, kind of um, just get you more fulfilled and more enriched with all the different stuff that's going on with technology here in Kentucky in the Midwest and beyond. So we're super excited about uh, today's episode. We have our first guest here today. Yeah, so we've got uh, Doyle
1: Frisney. Uh, he was a professor of mine at UK. Mine as well. Yep. So here's our professor. Uh, he was ex-CTO of UK, CTO Emeritus, CTO Emeritus. Uh, and so we're going to have a great conversation today. Ask him about his time at UK, some of the technologies he you know, interfaced with, uh, and you know, his experience in the, in the tech space. So today we're actually doing an episode out of Fuji's offices.
0: Yeah, so Doyle, do you want to kind of just give a little bit of background about yourself, how you ended up here in Lexington, and you know, just anything interesting you think you want to tell about yourself right off the top?
2: Well, there are a lot of interesting stories. <laughs> but one of them accumulated when I was a principal. Yeah. And there was a series of events happening, and a result of those series of events were I tried to get rid of a teacher, and the teacher <laughs> ended up. Teaching my children, which was not a comfortable oh, environment. Yeah, yeah. My wife suggested that she was leaving that environment, whether I wanted to come or not. So that caused me to look at opportunities outside of education.
0: Because you you had an education background. I had an
2: education background. Yeah. I taught elementary school, was a junior mm-hmm. high principal. Okay. And we decided, because we had three daughters, that we were going to live by one set of grandparents. Hers were in Lexington, and mine were really? in northwestern Ohio. And obviously, there were so many more opportunities in Lexington.
0: Yeah, for so sure. So I
2: ended up moving to Lexington and getting a job working with what is now the local telephone company, Windstream. Okay. At that time, it was GTE.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And worked in HR, probably where I really got attracted to technology. Because in working at that corporation... Yeah. I recognized that everything that was interesting and everything that seemed to be innovative had some basis in this thing they talked about being computers. I hadn't even thought about networks yet, even though the world was networks. happened to be asynchronous, but still was networks.
0: Around what time frame was this?
2: This would have been in the nineteen seventy late 1970s. On. Early um, days of computers, mass oh, computers. Well, basically mainframes mm-hmm. and basically only accounting and HR. And where I was becoming familiar with them was outputs of HR because in working there, I was getting offered opportunities to interview for jobs that I probably didn't think I had the education or skills for, but the computer was doing the sorting. Yeah, And because I had some advanced degrees, I was given opportunities. Other people weren't given. And I wondered why. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I bumped into how telephone systems worked. Mm -hmm. And over the next decade, then telephone systems really, really changed a lot. And ultimately becoming just another computer system. Yeah. So, so you were at
0: Windstream doing HR, and that's how you got involved in computers? And teaching management
2: development classes. Management development.
0: And then through the phone systems, you got interested in...
2: In, in computers. And, and what happened is, as usual, a lot of these large businesses started consolidating. Mm-hmm. So I was given first the opportunity to move to Florida then another opportunity to move to Dallas, and finally given the opportunity to move to the North Carolina area. And in all of those cases, I just had an attraction to Lexington. Yeah. And for some reason, I was crazy enough or gutsy enough to say, I'll pass. (laughs) And they finally said, well, if you're going to keep passing... Then maybe you ought to look for a job. Yeah. And at that point in time, I looked around. Probably the break of my lifetime was in 1984. I interviewed for a job at the University of Kentucky, very small data processing shop that just supported the vice president of administration, basically the chief financial officer of the campus. Mm -hmm. campus. So in working with that group we started with mini computers doing just basic programming for departments and introduced the whole concept of word processing with Wang word processors and Wang was early with email. So we introduced that whole concept of desktop computing even though it was done by terminals and it was probably At UK, the first time that people did what we would call a move towards personal computing, away from mainframe computing. At that time, mainframe computing at the university was primarily the payroll system and the accounting system. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. And so, at what point uh, did you start to move towards that CTO role? David Roselle. Was named president of the University of Kentucky, probably within several years, a couple of years after I had gotten there. Mm-hmm. And David Roselle came from Virginia Tech and had been provost at Virginia Tech, and was known for his intense interest in introducing technology to campuses and to use it across the university instead of just in the administration of the university. After he came to the university, he looked across the campus to see what he had to work with. I just was fortunate enough to work in an area that was a small departmental group, probably less than a dozen people total that I was managing. And we just happened to be doing a few innovative things because the computing environment we were in was a bit more nimble, a bit more flexible, Mm -hmm. and was actually producing results that were what we'd call today agile and closer to the end user department. And over basically a couple weeks, he asked the person that managed myself to take over all of campus computing. So we became, we moved over a weekend from being a departmental computing shop Mm -hmm. to a campus enterprise computing shop.
0: Were there other departments that were doing computing on campus that could have also taken that? Absolutely. So why you guys?
2: Guts. I mean, we were crazy enough never to admit we couldn't do something. Yeah. Uh, And it was interesting because it was so far ahead of its time from an employee perspective. Because all of the employees who were doing the programmings were women. Really? And that was not common in 1984. Yeah. And they were very independent and focused individuals. So they were producing code quickly, which really got the attention of David Rosell and others And they said, well, if you can do it for the smaller area, can you do it for the whole campus? First move was to do some computing in departmental areas. Mm -hmm. The next move was we purchased the telephone switch that served the campus. Yeah. Probably was another one of my big opportunities. Because I had worked for the telephone company for a period of time, they assumed I knew what I was doing. (laughs) and had the opportunity to work with creating the first infrastructure for a campus-owned phone system. Now, phone systems were deja vu. I mean, they had been there forever. The interesting thing was we created what eventually becomes a self-funding department. So at the very early stages of technology on campus, We weren't Mm -hmm. limited by the general fund that the state would provide the campus or the campus itself would augment the state budget with. We were able to create a funding infrastructure that allowed us to do things a lot of other people on campus couldn't do because they didn't have the funding. would like to have done. How did you create that? Where where did that funding come from? Just charging people for phone service. (laughs) charging people to uh, put a network infrastructure. I mean, when you stop to think about it, the very first thing we did was install phones, yeah. which you go, wow, isn't that, <laughs> isn't that deja vu? And Isn't that old school? But it was kind of new school then. Yeah. And remember this, at this point in life, there was no such thing as cell phones. They didn't exist. Mm. There was no such thing as personal computing. It didn't exist. It really wasn't anything as local area networks. It was mini computers or mainframes yeah. and a telephone system. Another group that had previously been in charge of enterprise computing was given the task, they were given several million dollars in the task of putting together a campus network. And they approached it as most academics would. And the end result was they didn't get far and spend a reasonable amount of money in that two-year period of time. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, the second break was to enter that whole area of building campus networks. Didn't we know what we were doing? Heavens, no. But they said, can you do it? We said we built a phone system. Surely we can build a (laughs) network. And we started with the first campus network. And we absolutely had no ideas what we were doing. But we were able, again, much like we did with purchasing the phone system, Mm -hmm. we're able out of either skill, luck, dumb luck, whatever it might have been, was able to get people on a network and get them to connect to something. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like the first four-way into the big explosion of networking, which now yeah. so overshadows compute. Mm-hmm. See, I, I feel like
0: that mentality that you guys had, of just saying, like, screw it, we can do it. Basically that's such, what it was. I feel like that's such a startup mentality now, and your department at the time was probably ahead of its time with that kind of let's just build it technological idea.
2: Like let's do it. it. It was simply a lot of interest in producing something and the challenge of seeing if you could accomplish it. Yeah. And a and bit you like of, the challenge. Yeah, and a bit of brashness. Because we were asked many times, could we do something? And we would say absolutely. And they said are you sure you can produce? And we said there is no doubt, and we had no idea whether we could do it or not. Sounds yeah. very familiar.
1: <laughs> very, very familiar to well, what we do here at Fiji. But yeah, it's interesting. And so, so, one thing I was wondering was at what point, when did students first start interfacing with these networks or computers?
2: Probably computer labs. Okay. Because mm-hmm. at that time, students could afford the computers. Yeah, no one brought their own computer. We're talking about the early computers we bought for individuals oh. on campus, the early personal computers, were eight to ten thousand dollars per computer. <laughs> the How first, big were they? Uh, about twice the size of the you know desktop CPU today in a yeah. normal monitor. I mean, it looked like those old television monitors yeah, with the yeah. big cathode <laughs> <laughs> tubes on them. Um, but the first computers for the computer labs were five $8,000. Wow. And we put, you know, maybe a dozen of those yeah. in, in a building. And usually they were unique to the discipline. Okay. And students, you know, obviously decided that was the way to go. Mm-hmm. Unless you've ever written a long paper with a typewriter, not selectric. <laughs> a typewriter, no word processor, mm-hmm. and all you had was tape to erase. Yeah. Uh, you don't know how beautiful students thought a computer with a word processor built in to where they could make all of their edit changes. Yeah. Before they produ- I mean, they just fell in love with it. So, obviously, the first thing students did was you know, basically, you know, word processors, spreadsheets, and print. Was, what,
0: was word processing, um, typing specifically, just documents, essays, whatever, was that significantly before spreadsheets
2: became very popular? Probably or? about, a, you know, five to eight years. Yeah. Uh, so
0: there was a time when really that's all students were doing with computers.
2: I'll, well, and even today, probably yeah. two-thirds of what a student does, and at the undergraduate yeah. level, is still writing. Yeah, yeah. that's true. And I think, I think it depends on the discipline probably a little bit true for that. And then the second thing that they probably were introduced to was email. Email. And that was reasonably early. That was in the early 80s, the early half of the 80s. So they probably didn't really completely commit to email until probably the later 1990s. When did the
0: UK email system, everybody getting their own email and account and all that, get set up?
2: That was probably done in the very late 80s, early 90s. Prior to that, there were administrators with email accounts from mm-hmm. the 84 timeframe on. But it was probably the 90s before the students really got excited about email. Yeah. One of the interesting things was... And I'm trying to remember what it was. It would have probably been the very, very late 80s, first of the 90s. UK was a part of the Southeastern United States uh, research organization called Sura. Mm -hmm. And end result of that is there were five supercomputer centers in the United States. And the National Science Foundation were encouraging research universities to connect to these five supercomputing centers. Mm -hmm. So in the early 90s, UK were one of the first of a dozen or two universities to connect together, to connect to a supercomputer, which eventually became BBN, which was eventually bought by MCI, which was the first internet. UK was involved with that? Was involved with that. The first internet to touch UK was a 56kb <laughs> ethernet connection. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Around what year was that? That would have been in the very late 80s, the very yeah. early 90s. That's funny. Today, the connection to the internet is 100 gigabits. <laughs> <laughs> Just a so little bit. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So let's let's kind of touch on that some more. Uh, how has the innovation and evolution of technology been, you know, over the last ten years in UK? Has it sped up? Is it have you noticed that there's been a slowdown, or
2: what's that looked like? Since the biggest difference in mm-hmm. the last decade yeah. at UK is what I call the consumerization of IT,
0: mm-hmm.
2: because Prior to that, UK provided the technology to the campus. During the last decade, the students are really yeah. providing the technology yeah. to Cause, campus. Because it's so it's, much ingrained with the rest of the absolutely. Lives. It is no it's something the university now supports the student technology. Mm-hmm but really isn't introducing the technology as, as, as significant as it was before. Biggest differences are, a lot of the technologies are the same. Mm-hmm. The core technologies haven't changed that much at all. You have the normal shift from campus-based technologies to cloud-based technologies, but they're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you had everything in a department, and then you virtualized the server and had everything centrally. And then you created a cloud, which looked like a virtual server you had on campus and everything went to the cloud. So that hasn't really changed. Word processing hasn't changed. But what has changed is what I'd call boutique applications at the department level. What do you mean by that? uh, Centrally speaking, historically, Mm you would have... Enterprise resource planning systems, ERPs, that were these massive systems that provided services across the campus ubiquitously. So everybody just Mm -hmm. logged on to use that system. Over the last 10 or 15 years, departments have come in and said, listen, we could do that application better than your ERP to the Mm -hmm. HR department or to the accounts payable department, or to the purchasing department, mm-hmm. or to the travel department, or to a researcher's lab. Yeah. So they were given absolutely, no longer did you have this monolithic, large, generic application, but you had applications yeah. being custom to the unique needs of individuals and departments. So as people adopted those, that whole concept of making systems talk to one another, Mm -hmm. the use of APIs and all of that. So the growth has really been in boutique systems and departmental systems and integrating them into a central campus system. The challenge for the future is I think the central campus systems are going to go away because the boutique systems are better. Yeah. So now, how are you going to weave together tens of boutique systems yeah. instead of one large monolithic central administrative system?
1: So are you talking about, you know, we had Blackboard in UK and now we have Canvas. Are those the central systems you're talking about or is that more of the boutique? Uh,
2: Canvas would become more of a boutique system. Yeah. Uh, what I'm really talking about is A lab researcher needs to do his traditional note-taking, which historically has been on pencil and paper Mm -hmm. in the lab to just document what his research is. And now a company has come in and said, let me automate all of this, kind of like a beginning of the Internet of Things, and let me connect your lab equipment to the software that's managing your lab to automating it with the notes that you're keeping. And so now and he has a whole system. Bingo, and yeah. then that one researcher, maybe in chemistry, needs to be connected to all the chemistry professors so they have a system across chemistry. That's the boutiqueness that I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Really, when you look at a campus, and I'm excluding the hospital because they have a number of different systems in many of their different areas and that's exploded over the last 20 Healthcare years. Healthcare tech is crazy. Healthcare is just unbelievable changes that have taken place there. But on campus you have administrative systems, yeah. a blackboard system, access to the internet, mm-hmm. some labs. It's not terribly complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
2: so do you think,
0: um, I'm kind of tying two points together here Um, you know so private companies or boutique applications um, come in and they target specific people and it's um, it's innovation for that specific group or that specific department and also you mentioned that um, students and people bring their own devices um, also private companies make those and build that software do you think the pace of innovation has increased from all of this this outside Technology coming in and the consumerization and of technology and the the, the splitting up of systems, or, or do you think it, it just makes it
2: slower in the end because it's so fragmented? I personally think it's increased pace of I mean, innovation. The, the innovation has increased because now it is so inexpensive to be able to create something on an Amazon cloud yeah, and offer that service to a set of individuals mm-hmm. and to see if that service will sell. Yeah, you, you don't free on us. Yeah, it, it isn't that expensive compared to historically what it would be. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of iterations of people trying innovative things to see how they will work. The other thing that's really changed is what was a monolithic system that might have been of value for 10, 20 years. Now a system will come in and leave within three or four years and be replaced with another system. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think of what was originally uh, systems to support classrooms and how that's changed. Or systems to support an administrative office and how that's changed. Uh, Mm. The whole concept of, of, you know, miniaturizing things through mobile devices. Yeah. And ownership. Who owns that mobile device? At one time, Mm. the university owned everything. Now it's not uncommon for the employee to own a number of those things. At one point in time, the university said, I'm going to provide you a university cell phone but you can't use it for personal use and a person would have an individual cell phone for personal use and couldn't use it for business and the foolishness of that ended up with a person saying I don't need the university's cell phone anymore yeah it's too inconvenient so there have been so many iterations of things introduced maybe more on the consumer side that gets adopted to the administrative side of the system Mm -hmm. That has ever happened before, which has caused an increase in adoption of innovation. Gotcha. Yeah. And you touched on it
1: there for a second—the uh, classrooms and how technology has been implemented in that. I know you, you had a lot of you know work there, and you know I studied and, and had classes in your in your classroom. Uh, so can you, can you touch on you know some of that thinking that you implemented around the classroom and, and implementing technology?
2: Yeah. What's really interesting is when you look at a university, even today probably 95 plus percent of our classrooms and how our classrooms are taught by professors Mm -hmm. are very similar to what they were 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the (laughs) big issues. The Socratic method of teaching a faculty member walking into a classroom and lecturing a large class of maybe 20 people to, you know, 300 people. Yeah. But that's not how the mind works. And it's not necessarily how people learn. Yeah. So, you know, in the last 10 years, people have asked, are there better ways? They, they've moved the shift from learning subject matter material to how do people learn subject matter material. So the whole concept of pedagogy, or how do I teach to encourage learning? started to be adopted. And in that, what the university has done is adopted the whole concept that is pervasive in the workplace. And what's really interesting, and that's collaboration. That's working as teams. Uh, It's really interesting because I keep saying, universities, if we put individuals in a room and we taught them materials, and we test them, and then we talk to one another. We call it cheating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they come to Fuji and work, you call it collaboration. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> the and, world. and we strive for that. So, yeah, yeah. you know, when I went back from my doctorate, mm-hmm. there were several things I wanted to document and determine whether they were true or not. And since i have been my whole career in higher education and in technology... I really wanted to believe technology would make you learn better. You you could learn a greater amount of material and you retain that material better if we were using technology than if we weren't using technology. At the end of my doctorate, I realized technology made no difference. Really? No. To me, what made a difference was the whole concept of. Interactions, which really result in working together, team learning skills, mm-hmm. is you're going to learn best when you are interacting with your peers and discussing with one of the things. Uh, I'm a constructivist, which means I believe everybody has a basic set of knowledge. They get introduced to a new environment. They take the basic knowledge that they have they try to understand that new environment, and then they create new knowledge. When you do that with another individual, then you both grow in a learning environment. So now I absolutely believe technology supplements learning, technology enhances learning. Imagine having to walk to a library and go through all of the research books and journals, et cetera, et cetera, instead of being able to log onto the library system and just search across thousands of journals and, and, and many, many, many recent books. Yeah. So the whole concept of technology has enhanced the ability to get at materials that allow you to learn. But your ability to interact with people and collaborate, your ability to interact with that content Mm -hmm. and then your ability to interact with a person that's guiding you through this learning process, those are the three magic areas. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. So specifically with the classrooms, um, I believe you were involved with bringing bringing smart classrooms to UK, um, especially in all the the new buildings and the construction that the university has undergone. Um, What are some specifics of things that, that you brought to the campus and why?
2: Uh, obviously, probably the most profound thing that I will always remember bringing to the campus that has absolutely transformed everything is networking. Mm. Even though early on I thought compute was going to make a difference, compute is ubiquitous today, but network networking, the access of the internet to everything had just transformed higher education. You know, if any university had to have one technology, I would be stunned if they didn't choose. It was their mm-hmm. network access. as the access that made a difference. So that's what brings information in and brings it
1: out. Universities yeah. need that constantly.
2: And, and it really is the basis for all interactions, which result yeah. in you know knowledge and learning. Yeah. Uh, the idea of active learning classrooms, they simply created an environment where I can let you Interact with one another. If you guys yeah. sit around a table and talk about a topic, you're gonna to remember that a whole lot better mm-hmm. than if I lecture to you. Yeah. If I lecture to you, you're gonna do everything you can after about 10 minutes mm-hmm. to look at your cell phone, to hopefully be able to look at your email or you know do something on the internet. You're gonna be doing something other than interacting and paying attention to me. So this whole interact, the active learning classroom is really encouraging people to interact with each other, to take all of those skills that industry has asked us to provide students. I mean, they want students who are willing to take a risk and learn on their own, to try to do something new. To be able to work on a team, to be able to challenge one another mm-hmm. without conflict, but also to be able to complement one another. I have said many times, if as a faculty member, if I can cause you to think about what you're writing and to be able to be a critical thinker and then critical analytical skills. And to collaborate and to show you where information and knowledge is, you can find everything else on the Internet. You can find the data. It's all there. Yeah.
1: With all this information, you know, being out there for students to to access, uh, do you think online classes and, you know, the Internet itself will eventually eat up traditional universities to where, you know, if you're a student, you might not necessarily make the decision to go to a traditional college? You might say, oh, I've got all this information on the internet. I've got these online courses. Do you see that being a part of the future where students are no
2: longer going to college? I think that online learning will be the growth area of both traditional universities and totally online universities. I don't think it's going to replace the traditional university. Why is that? I think because when you're 18 years old, I remember when my daughters I had three daughters when my daughters were Mm -hmm. three or four years old I would look at them and I would think how can I protect them? How can I (laughs) you know make sure that the world doesn't influence them incorrectly. Yeah. Then they became 16, 17 and 18 and I thought how do we separate this relationship? <laughs> so, as long as there's eighteen year olds mm-hmm. and the universities are the only legal place that you can take a person and leave them, <laughs> universities will probably always exist, but it always yeah. exists for another reason. Mm. You really begin to network. Yeah, you really begin to form what I would call your lifelong relationship. You'll have a few from mm. high school. But the ones that are transforming happen at universities. Yeah. Plus, that's where you try to... That's really where you learn who you are. Yeah. Yeah. You come to the university knowing who your parents were and who they want you to be. Yeah. But at the university, you find who you are. So I think the traditional university will always be there. Mm. But I think the growth and the response to the needs and the skill sets of individuals will happen more and more in the online world mm-hmm. and the traditional university will not get much bigger than it is today.
0: Yeah. I agree with you there I think there, there really is something to be said about physically being with other people you, you know you learn from them you find out who you are you're, you're um, exposed to different worldviews and different opinions um, and you, you grow as a person outside of the classroom just sitting in the library or sitting in the dining hall and just conversing. Um, but it was interesting kind of, you know, comparing. The, the, then the flip side of that would be, okay, well, we, we could learn better online. We can learn better, better through classes that are more targeted or more specific. Um, but what you just said earlier was that when you did your PhD, you found that technology doesn't impact learning. It's, it's the communication. It
2: complements it and it, it makes it it facilitates it mm-hmm. it encourages you to be able to do a greater amount of things in a shorter yeah. period of time but it doesn't make you a better learner yeah so
0: will technology ever get to the point where it connects you to other people and it improves your learning as much as physically being with them can I that's think, a really interesting question i think that's what two years ago stays. or four
2: years ago i would have said no way really yeah. But now you would say differently. Artificial intelligence is really yeah. intriguing. Yeah. yeah. I've, uh, <laughs> you know, I've
1: always done a lot of thinking around uh, this idea of an algorithm feeding you information, and feeding you experiences based on what you want to learn. And I've written about it uh, a lot, and I've thought about it a lot, where, you know, as you go through life, just as Facebook knows a lot about you. Right. Just as <laughs> they know a Google, lot of yeah, <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of news around Facebook before. But just as Google knows a lot about you, you know, you start feeding that stuff into an AI or an algorithm that is focused solely on education, and it starts feeding you uh, online courses. True. It starts feeding you, uh, you know, collaborative workspaces to go to based on who is there and what kind of interests they have. You know, I'm starting and, to envision, and, and it's not
2: just in Kentucky. Yeah. It's the world. Exactly. That's feeding that data. Yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so I'm starting to envision this. This entire experience that's AI driven, uh, that's so personalized and so you know, open minded, it opens your mind to so much because of the, the information that's available to this AI. That the idea of what it means for getting, to get an education is going to completely be flipped on its head.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, you're not going to go to
1: the same university for four years, in the same city, with the same people. You're going to be traveling around. You're going to be going from building a building to experience to experience to class to class, but it's an algorithm taking you everywhere versus a university telling you what you need True. to True,
2: and remember, what does a university do? They credential that you have done something. Yeah. <laughs> the paper that says you jumped there. That's all snap, they do, and right? There. And there are a limited number of institutions that can credential, can credential. So if I can do exactly what you just said, yeah. and I can... Document these other sources can produce the same knowledge growth, then I can credential that. And that can become a university degree equally as well. You know, the interesting one to watch now that people reference every now and then is Watson. Yeah, IBM's Watson project. They were ahead of the game building that. Major commitments. Watching what... The three companies that I watch on AI, mm-hmm. probably number one is Google. Yeah. Number two is Microsoft. And number three is IBM. Mm-hmm. And IBM, because they have put so much emphasis on what they... They have produced something that works with Watson. If you look at what they're doing with radiology, mm-hmm. it's absolutely stunning on what they can get as output... And remember, artificial intelligence, the difference between artificial intelligence and what we've done for the last decades is we've written algorithms to ask specific questions. In artificial intelligence, we're just putting data out there. Yeah. And we're saying, sort of tell me the patterns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's phenomenally different. Yeah. Now, if it tells me these are the patterns I see as a researcher... That leads me in a whole new direction, possibly. It gets exciting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, AI is definitely one of those things. So it can change change, education, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. And I don't think it's been applied to education at all yet.
2: Yes, I agree with you.
1: Just like it has with advertising or some of these other fields. You know, education. I've always said, from the time I started looking at technology and really getting passionate about it, that ed tech, educational technology, is the next big, section of technology that's going to take off in my mind.
2: So, you know, the real question is what's is the university going to be like in 10 years? Mm-hmm. Or what will people... I mean, in the end everything that you pay to have something done with that's, we, we sell no more than the product which is a degree. Yeah. Well, so...
0: I, I love UK, I loved UK, I, I'm from upstate New York originally, my mom is from Lexington, she went to UK, she told me my whole life I was going to go to UK, um, and so it's in my blood. Um, I absolutely loved my four years there, and I, I think because of that, I'm in a really unique position because I have this technological mindset, I have this this yearning to build and to improve and, and to, to do stuff and so I, I see I see the examples of like what you just explained Evan and, and so many other things that are out there um, but at the same time I, I love my four years at college however I don't Know how much benefit I got from sitting in class and so what did a piece you? What really made a difference being there and being involved? I was involved in a fraternity. I was involved in Dance Blue, which is a dance marathon. I um, just met people, and the people end result is many me. meeting,
2: meeting people. Yeah, you met people who started an entrepreneurial startup, mm-hmm. and from that, you had your first career opportunity. Yeah, and that all came because. You interacted with people in an yeah. environment different than your home environment. I'm sitting here right
0: now because I met Evan in your class. Right. right. I came to speak in yeah Dora's class. I assume
2: that meant that it was before class or after class. It was right <laughs> after, and not during class.
0: <laughs> after his riveting presentation. Yeah.
2: Um. Well, that's an interesting thing too because I am a really unique professor. Yes, you are. And you, you force people to interact, and you,
0: you force people to get a real-world perspective on things, not just open the textbook
2: and read the section about the lesson. Absolutely. I, I don't lecture. No, you don't. I, I hope that what I do is encourage people to know there's knowledge out there and create a thirst and a desire to seek that knowledge and then give them the skills to understand what's good and what's bad and the ability to communicate it, whether it's through teamwork, speaking or writing. Yeah. If I can do that, you're gonna be super successful. Yeah, and I, I wish more professors would do that.
0: Yeah. And I, I especially wish more professors would do it in with in classes with different subjects. Obviously it, it lends itself naturally to the entrepreneurship class I was in with you. You can talk to entrepreneurs, but why couldn't I do it in my statistics class? Let's absolutely. get some real some, world statistics. Yeah, let's get some people in here talking about how they're using statistics in the real world. That that just makes it so much more interesting and so much more real. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. were the only
1: class that I genuinely paid somewhat attention in because <laughs> so, because of the, the structure of it. I will say, like my first two years, I uh, you know I, I absolutely hated you know my other classes. I, I wasn't engaged. I didn't pay any attention. I didn't have a connection, but you know the bit, the structure of your class and the way that it was collaborative and and well, the challenge is just of the speakers no coming really. in. Yeah, I
2: mean, yeah. So part I of the challenge was we brought people in who were entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, I was smart and recognize I don't know about entrepreneurs. Yeah. I have never been an entrepreneur. I probably don't have enough risk assessment to the entrepreneurial spirit that would cause me to give up a bunch of what I have potentially lose it to do something. You guys are. Yeah. So what we did is brought people in who have done that. And that's what excites people. And causes them to say, yeah, I want to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> no way, buddy.
1: Yeah. And so one of the last things I want to touch on that I've been thinking about pretty extensively as far as education goes as well is that we were just touching on the entrepreneurial mindset mm-hmm. or the entrepreneurial risk you know management, mm-hmm. and do you believe that that you know can be taught over time? Because uh, I do. You know I believe that you know you can teach a mindset and teach someone to look at something in a different way with an entrepreneurial mind. And if it can be taught, which I think it can, why isn't that one of the main topics of discussion early in high school or even younger to show students that they can create for themselves or have this mindset, uh, the entrepreneurial mindset or the go get Mindset, and why isn't that you know built into curriculums just like a math or an English? Uh, Because I've always wondered that. And what's what's your thoughts there?
2: Hmm, That's an interesting question. All I can say is most civilizations want to replicate what they are. Yeah. With the younger generation. What, well, yeah, I, I know what was good for me. I want you or my children. I want to give you that same experience or that same opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that's true with politics, that's true I mean, with your religious life. life. It's also true with education. Why do we have 98 percent of our professors still lecturing when they know that isn't specifically <laughs> the best yeah. way? Beca- that? Because that's what's accepted. Yeah, well, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. It means yeah. it's the way that has been considered approved. Yeah, and and,
1: and that's what frustrated me so much because uh, when I was at Gadden, there was no entrepreneurial courses that or or paths. There were courses, but they weren't. There were only two or three, and it wasn't what it should have been. There wasn't an entire path to go down, or there wasn't an entire. Uh, core curriculum around learning that there is a way for you to produce for yourself yeah. and so when I didn't see that and I noticed that that's what I wanted to do there was no reason to continue with UK right. there was no reason for me to continue to go to college if I knew that that's what I wanted and they weren't going to provide now I will say that the year after I dropped out they did build the von Almond set right, but at that good. time I was not getting any feedback
2: or indication that that was going to happen. It, the problem with the Von Almond Center, too, is who moved into uh-huh. The people that were there five years and ten yeah. years before. Yeah. So that change is not going to be fast. No. It, that's why the best thing that can happen higher education is newer business models, whether it's online instruction at another a totally online university, whether it's a kind of like an art school where you just focus on a particular topic, we what we need are different learning environments to challenge us. Yeah. And then we need those environments to be successful. And then change will happen. One person always told me, you change when the pain of change is less than the pain of, pain of staying the way you are. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You take the path of least resistance. Right, so, yeah. and that's going to happen with higher education. It's going to yeah, incrementally change. The issue becomes, if you need to develop skill sets quickly, which absolutely is happening today, in two- and three-year cycles, Mm -hmm. higher education is going to have a hard time meeting that. What we're going to do is credential a traditional degree, but the fast-paced, fast-changing world... It's not going to be relevant. It's not going to be relevant. Yeah, yeah. I think one place I've I've really seen
0: that is in marketing.
2: Um, Yes. It's, I mean... It's totally different than it was a decade ago.
0: Yeah, and that's what they're still
2: teaching. I mean, and no, that's exactly <laughs> what I said. The marketing professors of a decade ago are yeah. still in the Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you go into that first marketing class, they're teaching about the four P's. I don't think I've, I've thought about a P in the traditional sense the entire time I've been marketing manager here at Fuji. That was uh, that class,
1: I got a 60, which is the lowest grade I ever got in my entire life. Yeah. And I was, just, I was so frustrated. I went to the teacher, and I'm like, this is not what marketing is. And so, you know, it felt good to, you know, be able to drop out and immediately go to work for a social media startup.
2: And what's even better is when you make more than the professor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, and well, let me say one great thing about technology and working at a university mm-hmm. I've been fortunate to become, you know, a faculty member later in my career. Mm-hmm. But boy, the opportunities mm-hmm. to meet challenges. And to be challenged, and to change, and to be rewarded financially, mm-hmm. as well as just through the satisfaction of you know doing transforming things. I mean, absolutely. When you look at healthcare, when you look at athletics, when you look at the traditional university, and the changes that have happened over the last thirty years, gosh, was I lucky to be where I was?
0: Yeah, I think that's all you can ask in a career is to be able to look back on it and feel that way. That's awesome. One, I think one kind of general last question to sum up, is there any trends in technology, whether it's in higher education or not in higher education, that specifically interest you and you think are, are going to be revolutionary
2: coming up? Anything that, that you see in the future that's really interesting? Uh, Probably, we've talked about a little bit, artificial intelligence is transforming. Uh, in my social media class, one comment um, I made is if you're looking at all of the Alexas and the Google Homes, mm-hmm. that's only the tip of an iceberg. Yeah. When you think that... I told them, when they have kids and their kids are six years old or we'll probably talk less than 10 years, their kids are going to laugh at them for using a keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> voice
0: is huge. That was... We got into that. <laughs> we got
2: into that discussion in our first
0: episode. We were we were just gonna talk about um, ring, the, the smart um, right. doorbell and somehow we got into 30 minute discussion just about how huge voice is and it, the it,
2: voice interface And transform. In. And when you put that on the front edge mm-hmm. and artificial intelligence behind it. Yeah. It's it's a different way of It's a, total, and, it's a different way of interacting. When with you think of it. in the past we've thought of Context of what I call globs of data, everything's moving from those, you know, textual Mm environments to video environments, streaming video environments. I mean, can you imagine in less than five to ten? Oh, first of all, autonomous cars. Well, no, you're not (laughs) even going to own an autonomous (laughs) car because you're just going to buy a a subscription service to cars. Yeah. (laughs) And you might want yep. an SUV one day, and two days later you might want a sports car, and another day you might want a pickup truck, and they're going to deliver you whatever you want. Yeah. So when you combine that with something like wearables, either you know watches that complement your health care, mm. or glasses that act as your screen and your voice as yeah. the input, guys, it's going to be exciting. Yeah. I wish I were twenty years younger for that part.
1: Yeah. No, I can't wait. I can't wait for what's up, up to come and, and to be a part of it and,
2: and influence it. And that's what's really changed. It's the speed of change. It's increased. Tremendously. When nice. I started in technology, if you understood a technology, mm. you could have a 20 year career in it. Today, you can maybe have five years.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, it's definitely exciting to see what's coming up, and it's great to hear. That excitement from you and kind of that perspective on it um, going back, you know, since you've been dealing with it since the early days of computers and just, it's great to see your excitement for it too.
2: It's going to be interesting.
0: Yeah. We're pumped. That's why we're doing this. Yeah. Let's talk about the future. So maybe
2: when I grow up, I can work at (laughs) Fuji? Yeah. (laughs) Come in tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are so
0: far ahead of me. Thank you for doing this, Doyle. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is awesome. Everybody make sure to thank Doyle. His Twitter at is at Doyle. How early were you on that platform? Pretty early I have been harassed for that though.
2: Really? Yeah. People offer you money? Um, uh, people have offered me money, but most of, more than that they've offered that they would make sure I was not a happy person if I didn't give it to them. That is wow. insane. That's crazy. Maybe it's money. called bullying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <I> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I, I had a Facebook when when it was still just at Harvard. Really? Wow! <laughs> 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 because they, they, he was still there when he was given. you know, the first thing he did was .edu yeah. addresses. Yeah. yeah. And the first one was Harvard.edu, and then he opened up the .edu, he was still at Harvard then. he <laughs> got one in real <laughs> That's awesome. Early adopter session. Early adopter.